Remember when you held <clears throat> your firstborn child? It's been a long time since I held my firstborn, but I remember that, and you probably do too. The tears of joy that come with that, maybe some tears of anxiety as you thought about the challenges of rearing an eternal creature that God has given to you. But either way, there is great rejoicing that because this is a very special baby. Not that the others aren't, they're special too. That firstborn, it just seems like that's a very special baby. And we, we are rejoicing for a number of reasons, but we're rejoicing because the Lord has granted us a child. And we are believers that the Lord is the one who grants us those children. We know people who have not been able to conceive, and, and it has been a, a source of difficulty and, and anxiety and sadness to them. Maybe for a number of years, maybe, maybe they've never been able to have a child. And so when we have a child, it, it's not just because we know that about others, it's just because this is a tremendous gift from God, a gift of a child, the giver of all children. And there are a lot of reasons why we might rejoice in that child, in our culture. But there were different reasons when a biblical and Jewish culture rejoiced in a child. The firstborn child was particularly a son, was extremely important to the Jews, wasn't it? I can imagine that Jewish father as he held that baby in his hands, that, that firstborn son, and and said maybe something like, this, <clears throat> this child is going to carry on my name. My name is not going to be lost. My name will be carried on. Not only my name, but also my identity. I mean, this child will carry on a lot of who I am as a person. And then because it's the firstborn son, that firstborn son will have the majority or a major portion of the inheritance. And to the Jews, that was very important because land was the main importance to a Jewish family and to a Jewish tribe and to a Jewish clan. That imagery of the firstborn is expanded and expounded on in several ways in both Testaments. And we're going to look at both Testaments this morning, but remember, this is our series, but we do see Jesus. And Jesus is called the firstborn several times in the New Testament. We're looking beyond the Gospels in this series for most of our, our information. What do the rest of the New Testament letters and books say about Jesus in certain ways? And today it'll be about the firstborn. He is one who is going to be exalted by that name. And what's nice about it and what's wonderful about it for us today do is, is because we love our Jesus, of course. But the benefits of that also come down to us Christians. There is a connection between Jesus as the firstborn and we Christians who are also called firstborn. But let's go back to the Old Testament for just a little bit and do a little bit of groundwork because I think that's what was intended when Jesus is called this firstborn son in the New Testament. If you look back before the law of Moses, you find that the firstborn is uh, still there. I mean, it's, it's already in existence in terms of concept. 
the traditions, the rules, the, the inheritance thing that go with the firstborn son are in existence with Abraham and the patriarchs. But it really comes into the law of Moses where the, I suppose, the theological significance begins to have its basis and its roots. When the Lord began his extraction of the Israelite nation from their Egyptian bondage and slavery, he made this statement in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn, my firstborn son. The nation, that is. That's kind of the macro view. That's the big view. The nation is going to be God's firstborn son. You'll remember in that tenth plague, when the Lord passed over the Israelite nation, but didn't pass over the Egyptian nation. He took their firstborn sons. To prevent the Lord taking the firstborn sons of Israel, they were to put blood on the lentils of the doorpost to prevent the Lord from doing that. Really, what's beginning to be said here is, the Lord says, I take the firstborn. The firstborn is mine exclusively. And you, Israel, need to understand, first of all, that you as a whole nation are the firstborn. But, but that begins to come down a little bit more to a little bit of a different macro view. When in Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the tribe of Levi, still kind of the macro view, the tribe of Levi is designated by the Lord as the substitute for the whole nation as the firstborn. And so the tribe of Levi is one that's going to be set apart as that firstborn son, as it were. So the whole nation really is firstborn, but there's going to be a substitute, and that's going to be the Levite nation. You know that the Levite nation was responsible for taking care of the tabernacle and the priestly duties. So a very important tribe they were. And that, that nation, I'm sorry, that tribe was to be sanctified and cleansed. It was to be redeemed so that it could be sanctified and cleansed. They had to offer certain sacrifices. Numbers chapter 3 verses 40 through 51. The Lord said, you offer these sacrifices and Levi will be mine. That was, that was in substitution for them actually dying because that's what the firstborn was really supposed to be, a sacrifice to God. But the Lord allowed the Levites to be redeemed by sacrifices. And because they were redeemed and they were exclusively gods and they were to serve in the temple and the tabernacle, first of all, they were to be cleansed and sanctified and given certain tasks to do. Numbers chapter 8, verses 1 through 22, talk about that cleansing and that sanctified state that they were to be in. But now as we come down to the micro view we find out that the Lord wants each firstborn son of each family. Not just the nation, not just the tribe of Levi, but the firstborn son. The first offspring of every wound among the Israelites belongs to me. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2. That son was to be sacrificed to the Lord because he was exclusively the Lord's. Well, if you remember the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel, the first few chapters, she couldn't conceive with her husband. Finally, the Lord blessed her with a child. His name was Samuel. 
And Hannah had, had said to the Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. Well, the firstborn son was to be given back to the Lord. But in this case, Hannah did it by giving him to the tabernacle. He was to serve there. And he did. She followed through on that promise. And so the firstborn son was indeed considered to be a sacrifice to the Lord. He too could be redeemed by sacrifice so that he wouldn't die. Every family could have their firstborn son to live with them, but they were to understand still that that firstborn son belonged to the Lord exclusively. And he could be redeemed by sacrifice and they could keep him, but they should always have that point of view. And so as we, as we sort of look at that Old Testament macro and micro view, once again, I want to go back to what that father would have said about that firstborn son. That firstborn son is going to carry on my name. Israel, the nation, the Levites, the firstborn sons. We're supposed to carry on the name, not only of the father, but also of the Lord. They were to have his identity like the father. They were also to get an inheritance. That goes all the way back to the Abrahamic land promise where the, the tribes were given certain portions of land. The families were given certain portions of land. And so that, that inheritance idea, name, identity, and inheritance seem to be the three words that capsulize that Old Testament concept of the firstborn. And I think those concepts come into the New Testament when we start looking at who Jesus was. So let's allow the New Testament passages to talk to us about Christ the firstborn because he is noted that way. The first one is in the Gospels, but and yeah, we're not supposed to be looking at the Gospels, but we got to start there. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, the text says, She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Her firstborn, a son. What, what's the concept? What's the meaning of firstborn? Well, in this particular text, and if you want to know the Greek word and, you know, show how smart you are to somebody who wasn't here today, protokos. It sounds like prototype, from which we get our word prototype. It's the first in a series and that's what firstborn here seems to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Seems to me. Jesus was the firstborn, but he was the first in a series of children that were born to this family. We learn that from, from Matthew and Mark and John, particularly, that Jesus had brothers and sisters and they were born to Joseph and Mary. Jesus was the first. No, Joseph wasn't his father. But he was the firstborn into that family. And he was the first in a series of children born to that family. And that prophesies a spiritual connotation concerning us. First of all, as was the firstborn and the first child in the family, he was the first child in a series of children. And that comes down to us too. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I explain that another time, but we'll stick to the firstborn idea. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed or conformed to the likeness of his son or the image of his son, that he might, Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
That seems to have that idea of first in a series again. Jesus was the firstborn son, but guess what? There are a whole lot of other firstborn sons we're sitting here today. He was the first in a series of firstborn sons. What a privilege to be in the family. What a privilege to take on the identity. What a privilege to have the inheritance that Jesus had, that it comes down to us. Well, let's kind of unfold in another passage. Certainly the main passage that I think of when I think of firstborn son when it comes to Jesus is Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Part of that's going to be on the screen in the next slide, but let's just read together or listen together to first, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy, some translations say, some translations say preeminence. One translation says he gets first place. I like the word preeminence, so we'll sort of stick with that, hopefully uh, uh, consistently through what we, how we talk about that. For God was pleased to have all his fullness in him, verse 19. Again, Jesus is identified twice in this text with the designation firstborn. But really, I think there are three firstborn designations for him in this text. And so let's see what Paul, the, the apostle, says particularly about his firstborn status that is different than saying he is the first in a series. That's important. But what else about his firstborn status is significant? Well, back up in verse 15, uh, 14 and 15, or 15, 16, he is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. He's the supreme head of everything that's been created. We know from other texts, including this one, like John chapter 1, that he is the creator. He is not a created being. He is the creator and therefore is over all that he created. He was involved in the creation. We know that from other texts as well as this one. He created them by him. The text says, and for him. Jesus created this in a way for glory to himself. It is about Christ, this creation is. And we're a part of that creation. And all of that, be all of that beautiful creation out there that we enjoy is by him and for him. The text also says he holds it all together. He's the one who keeps it all held together. The Hebrew writer says a couple of things that touch on this concept. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. I'd like to hear the Hebrew writer expound on that. 
Uh, he, is the, he is the exact representation of his being. He has his identity. He has his name. That's what that's being said. But then it also says he sustains all things by his powerful word. He is the heir of all things, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. So the Hebrew writer says this too. Jesus, this business about Jesus being the firstborn has to do with him having his name and also having his identity and also having his inheritance. The Colossian text, again, is about him being over all creation. And and trying to think about what maybe that means, as you think about what that means, let me share some things that, that occurred to me. So he created it, he sustains it, he rules over it, and he uses it for his purposes. When that light continues to go 186,000 miles a second, it's because he told it to. When that sun came up this morning at 707, it came up because he told it to. He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. When those animals continued to do by their instincts what they do, it's because he told them to. The plants have busted out in their spring garments because he told them to. The seasons will go through what they go through because he told them to. The, axi- the, the planets will spin on their axes and orbit around the sun because he tells them to. He is preeminent over all created things. Oh, even the angels are created beings, and he too tells them to do what they are to do. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is preeminent over all creation for his purposes. But then as you come down to verse 18 in this text that's before us, it says, he is the head over the church. He is the head over this body, the church. And I'm going to say that even though the term firstborn is not used in this text, I think it's very appropriate that we label him the firstborn, the preeminent one over the church. You may remember a few weeks ago when Monty preached from this very text. He talked about Christ being the head of the church from this text and head over all things for the church from Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. You say, well, how do you get firstborn out of this? Well, remember that the firstborn in an Israelite family, once his father dies, and no, the father has not died, and Jesus has not taken over that, but that's what happened in the Israelite family. When the father died, the firstborn son took over the headship of the family and was responsible for looking out for the rest of his siblings the brothers and sisters. That concept seems to come through when you go to the Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, where it says, speaking of of us Christians, he said, we are the church of the firstborn. You heard me say we there. You might be fooled if if you're not really tuned into the concept here that the term firstborn in Hebrews 12 is plural. It doesn't always come through in the translation. I kind of wish they had said firstborn ones. We are the church of the firstborn ones. Because we follow in a succession of. Remember, first in a series, Christ is the firstborn. We are the followers of that. But now, we are the church of the firstborn ones. Well, who is the firstborn head of the church? 
if not Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who is over the church. And how do I know that? How do I think about that? Maybe you think about that differently, but I think about that he is preeminent over the church and that he has all authority over us. Why are we here today? Why are we looking at these passages? Why do we sing the songs of dedication that we do? Because they are in relationship to the headship, to the firstborn designation, the preeminence of Jesus over the church. He has a mission. And we've said, okay, we will follow you because you tell us to. The church runs to his word and wants to know, what do you want us to think? What do you want us to believe? What do you want us to practice? Because he tells us to. We stay pure in our lives because he tells us to. We carry on the works that he carried on this earth because he tells us to. We worship the way we do because he tells us to. He is preeminent. He is authoritative. We hang on every word. We look forward to his words of authority because he is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn of the church. That's about his name and his identity as well. But there's one last one in our text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is firstborn over all the dead, the text says. That's repeated in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It says, and from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Now, we know that Jesus was not the first one raised from the dead, but he is the most important one. He is the first one raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the one who conquered death, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 15 and 55 and 57. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is preeminent over death. He has conquered death. We celebrated it. Our Drew talked about the resurrection. That's how he conquered it. And he lives to be the firstborn over the dead of which we will be a part. In what way is he preeminent over the dead? I suppose lots of ways could be, could be stated and and referred to, I thought of these thoughts. When, we return, when he returns to the earth and brings the spirit of those who have already died, some of which were mentioned this morning by Kurt in his, in his prayer, when he brings their spirits back, they will come because he is preeminent over them. He will tell them to come with him. And when he gets here, the Gospel of John and other places, but the Gospel of John particularly will say, he will speak to the dead bodies and they will rise. You know why? Because he is preeminent over those dead bodies. They will rise and they will reunite with the spirits because he tells them to. They will fly into judgment and be propelled into eternity with God because he tells them to. He will give them their inheritance because they are firstborn sons in a series. He is the firstborn and preeminent one. He will give them their inheritance. Firstborn over all creation. Thank you. Firstborn over the church. Thank you. Firstborn over the dead. And not only is that exalting of Jesus, but he has shared his name 
He has shared his likeness, his identity. And one day he will give us our inheritance. He told the apostles before he left, I'm going there, but when I go there, I'm going to send the Spirit. One of the things he said about the Spirit is, it's a guarantee that one day I'll come get you. You know why? Because he is firstborn. He is firstborn even over the dead. Surely, if you're not a member of the church of the firstborn ones, the ones that look to Jesus for everything, their salvation, their hope, even as was prayed this morning, their eternal destiny, which will be eternal bliss, because, because Jesus is the firstborn. Surely, if you're not a part of that, surely you want to be this morning. I hope your faith is strong in Jesus. I hope you're ready to give your lordship of your life over to him. That's what repentance is all about. It's not just being sorry about the things of the past, but it's saying, I give up rulership. I surrender all. And I'm ready because I believe to meet you in the waters of baptism because I know that your blood will wash me clean because you live. And I will be raised to walk a new life, a firstborn son in the church of the firstborn while we stand and sing.